0: Hello, and welcome to Peach Pot, a Georgia politics podcast. I'm today's host, Megan Payne. This is a Peach Pod special episode to celebrate Women's History Month. Today, we have a cast of all women. With us today, we have Olivia Bauer, Peach Pot Intern, focusing on rural development. How are you doing, Olivia?
1: I'm doing great. Happy to be here.
0: And we also have Peyton Childers, Peach Pot Intern, who is focusing on healthcare in Georgia. Welcome to the show, Peyton. Thank you, Megan. We also have Kelly Dobso, Peach Pot Intern, and she is focusing on the presidential race. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, thanks for having me. And finally, returning to the show after quite the hiatus, we have Tori Slatton, immigration and human rights attorney and TikTok famous personality. Welcome back, Tori. I'm really glad you added the TikTok
2: part. I was afraid you were going to forget.
0: <laughs> just just so we have it, what is your TikTok handle?
2: At TikTok, T-I-K-T-O-R-T-O-K.
0: <laughs> awesome. So we have never done an episode quite like this. We're super excited to bring you all, our listeners, this special Today, we'll be covering some of our favorite moments in women's political history. Um, We'll be including Roe versus Wade, the Equal Pay Act of 1963, Title IX, and the Violence Against Women Act of 1994. We will cover a quick presentation on each topic, which by the way, have been selected by my lovely cast of women. Then we'll have a bit of a discussion about the topic, especially how they affect us today and if they tie into Georgia. So without further ado, Let's start out with, with the court case, Roe versus Wade, and then we'll move on to legislation in our uh, following topics. So Kelly is covering the ever-important Roe v. Wade Supreme Court case, which was decided in 1973. Roe v. Wade, of course, covered a woman's right to choose. Kelly, please tell us why this case is so important to you and to women's history.
3: So um, the Roe versus Wade court decision, it gave women independence and rights over their own bodies and the power to make reproductive health decisions for their own livelihoods. Um, and this decision also allowed women to make choices for themselves without the government, a spouse, or a doctor regulating it. And for me, the constitutionality of a woman's right to choose holds massive importance as we are finally given autonomy over our own health. And so let's talk about some of the background of the Roe v. Wade case. So before Roe v. Wade, there was a prominent quote unquote Jane group in Chicago. And they were were primarily a group of women who performed abortions on women when they were illegal. And women needing an abortion would call a hotline and ask for Jane. And they would be met by people in the quote-unquote Jane group and also brought to a secret apartment. Overall, it was very dangerous and many women died due due to these procedures since they were not regulated and they were illegal. And also a quick plug on the Jane group. um, If you'd like to learn more about them, there's also a great movie called Ask for Jane. But so, moving forward, the full name of the case itself was Jane Roe versus Henry Wade, where Jane Roe was actually a name given to the person to protect the identity of the woman. So Jane Roe sued the district attorney of Dallas and argued the constitutionality of the current abortion laws, which made abortion illegal unless a doctor ordered it to protect the mother. Jane Roe's argument was that the abortion laws were vague and violated her personal privacy, and she also cited the first, fourth, fifth and 14th amendments as part of her case. And then a major um, flaw of the Texas state law about abortion was that the lawsuit targeted was the restriction of abortion regardless of the stages of pregnancy. Meaning so um, they banned abortions regardless if it was six weeks in, if it was 20 weeks in, it didn't matter. All abortions were illegal. And so the result of the court case was that they found the constitution protects a a pregnant woman's right to choose Um, to have an abortion without excessive government restrictions. And more specifically, they also added regulations to abortions for different trimesters. So, for example, um, and this goes on to current day also, this has been being debated currently. Um, For the first trimester, states cannot regulate anything. And then for the second trimester, states can impose regulations in regards to maternal health for um, for the mother. And then in the third trimester, The states can either regulate or ban them except for cases where the mother's health is at risk. And so that kind of brings me to the Georgia focus and kind of what we saw last year with um, the House Bill 481, the heartbeat bill where Governor Brian Kemp signed into law basically banning abortions after six weeks, which would violate, which would go into the first trimester and violate that. And then secondly, the more recent thing with the coronavirus is that There are a lot of anti-abortion protesters saying that the coronavirus basically needs to be taken more seriously and abortions should go to a halt, and that medical resources are being used for abortions instead of the coronavirus outbreak. However, people who have been working at the abortion clinics are saying that they are practicing the CDC guidelines and social distancing, um, so they should still be able to perform um, their duties at the abortion clinics.
0: Awesome, Kelly. So I have some questions, and I'm going to open this up to our larger group. Anyone who wants to answer can. Can anyone explain what women's productive health rights looked like before Roe versus Wade? Were abortions common? And how or where were they performed if states ruled against having, allowing abortions?
2: I, my understanding is that a lot of it was regulated by the states, which means a lot of, um, a lot of it was all over the place. And so some states had really good legislation, others didn't, but it's kind of weird because it wasn't that hot of a topic at the time, and so it wasn't quite as hostile as it was now. Um, but I think we all know the horror stories of the states that did regulate um, about what women would go through trying to get an abortion.
3: Yeah, that sounds exactly right. And I believe the count, to for um, the states that had banned it versus had it legal was about like 30 states banned it and 20... 20- had it completely legal or something like that, or numbers are flipped either way, but that sounds right.
0: Do y'all feel like Roe versus Wade really changed anything uh, for women's rights? I know that we're, you know, like Kelly mentioned in Georgia, we're already, we're experiencing a lot of states trying to basically say women cannot have abortions at all, which seems kind of counter to Roe versus Wade. So how do y'all feel about all of these states trying to essentially do total abortion bans?
4: I feel like Roe versus Wade set a precedent for women's um, reproductive rights and like something that we can go back to and point at when we do have states like Alabama, Texas, and Georgia who are trying to overturn this. And I think that's really good that we can go back to it and say like, hey, this happened, And, like, we're not going to change it and we're not going to, like, forget about that for states that are wanting to, like, get rid of abortions now and ban them.
1: So as far as I can see, the Georgia heartbeat bill that was proposed in 2018, I think it was, it's basically just a ban on abortion because the heartbeat occurs only six weeks into the pregnancy. So that's before most women would even know that they're pregnant. And I know that there was a large demonstration in Atlanta that I actually went to when that was proposed, and there was a lot of people there. And I think that if um, the people continue to pressure lawmakers and punish them by not re-electing them, then I don't think that these attacks will continue. I, I think they're obviously trying to get Roe versus this, these cases, these bills up to the Supreme Court to get Roe versus Wade overturned. So I think that eventually that's what we're going to see. But then... If it goes up, if it doesn't, if it's not overturned, and if there are uh, electoral punishments for these lawmakers, then I think that that's the solution for the attack that reproductive rights are under right now.
0: Absolutely. So that reminds me of, uh, well, that brings me to my next question. But before we get to that, one thing that I want to personally note is, as I understand it, it's not technically a heartbeat at that early stage. It is an electrical impulse, but there's technically not a heart to beat at that time. Again, as I understand the the law, so therefore even calling it a heartbeat bill is misleading. So as Olivia mentioned, one of the things that this could be leading to is a, potentially an overturn of Roe versus Wade. What would women's reproductive rights look like if Roe versus Wade was overturned? And who would be the most impacted?
4: I think that if Roe versus Wade was overturned, women wouldn't have any um, reproductive rights at all, like, they just would cease to exist, um, and they're already being, like, hurt, and so if this is overturned, it's just going to be that much worse, and it's really going to affect low-income women, women of color, um, women who don't have access to health care, and women who are underrepresented already. It's really going to hurt them, because it's not going to stop them from getting abortions, They're still going to get abortions. It's just going to be illegal and very unsafe for them. For sure. I completely agree with
3: Peyton as well. Um, Another thing that I would add is when we saw the legislation in Mississippi with their heartbeat bill, we saw, I believe they only have one abortion clinic remaining anyways. And so essentially they would shut down the only abortion clinic they had in the state. And so you would see people who are poor and they work all the time, and they don't have, like, they don't have the means to take off work and drive down to the abortion clinic for a day or two days or however, however many days it is. Um, they can't afford to do that, so it's going to directly impact working people, um, and especially people of color as well, and those without um, transportation means um, in order to get to these abortion clinics, especially where, in cases like Mississippi, there's only one abortion clinic throughout the state.
0: Thanks so much, Kelly, for presenting that topic. Um, I think that it's definitely a a milestone in women's rights, and it's especially pertinent to bring up this Women's History Month. To kick off our legislation topics for this episode, Tori is going to talk about the Equal Pay Act of 1963. It was intended to require, quote, equal pay for equal work, end quote, Given that there is still pay inequality, it clearly wasn't as successful as intended, but it does give women the right to fight for equal pay. Tori, can you tell us what this act is all about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually an amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Sorry, can't talk today. It basically, like you were saying, the idea behind it is is that it was supposed to guarantee equal work for equal pay. Of course, we know that now. Looking back throughout history and the current pay gap, that that doesn't always pan out the way I think that the legislation was intended. But I think having it on paper, federal law that's um, that was consistent throughout uh, throughout every state was an important milestone in getting women into the workforce and even just introducing the idea, which now seems like really elementary to us, but at the time was extremely radical that. If women did the same job as a man, they deserved equal pay. Because before that, I just don't, I think um, there's a lot of notions about what women were, what, like, what women should be making if they're in the workforce and the idea that they didn't have to support a family the same way a man did, Uh, which again, we know is untrue. So um, it was passed into law in 1963. Um, Kennedy is the one who signed it. He said it was a significant step forward, but acknowledged that a lot remained that needed to be done. And actually, Georgia also has a corresponding bill, which this happens a lot with legislation on this level, because so Georgia has the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act. Uh, it's through the Georgia Department of Labor. It was passed in a series of stages, actually starting what I could see in, in the 1960s, and it like continues to kind of live and breathe and grow with uh, new pieces of it getting passed up until um, actually it seemed like a couple years ago. This actually just allows women to sue if they feel that they've been discriminated against, not just on a federal level, but also in state court. And that's really important because um, not everybody can always, it's very important to have different avenues because you're more likely to get your case heard. So one thing that I think is important to note (laughs) is that the pay gap does exist. Not only does it exist, it exists uh, pretty remarkably at this point. According to the American Association of University of Women, um, that it's on average that women are paid only 82 cents for every dollar that is paid to men. Um, At the current rate of progress, our pay gap will not close until um, 2093. So one thing that's really important to note, though, is that Hispanic women are making 54 cents for every dollar American Indian and Alaska Native make $0.57 for every dollar. Native Hawaiian, other Pacific Islander women make $0.61 on every dollar. Black women make $0.62. Asian women make 89 So I think it's important to acknowledge that because like most things in our society, it is people of color that are going to suffer more than white women in the workforce. Um, this also like creates an income gap in retirement because they haven't, they've earned less and therefore have paid less into the social security system. Uh, they receive less in social security benefits. Uh, so it, the pay gap is is so significant. It basically affects every single part of our society and it's pretty glaring. And a lot of people have their own theories, which I think we're going to open up that about our own theories about why it exists, But um, I think all of that is to say that the the bill was not perfect and we're still figuring it out as we go. Um, It's also something to note that the next Equal Pay Day is Tuesday, March 34, 2020. It's basically like a statewide protest and movement for like additional activism. It's in March because it symbolizes how far into the year women have to work to receive the same amount of pay because it's an extra three months. So Tori
0: outlined some of the things that women can now do because this law exists. But I want to open this up to the other women in the group. Suing your employer seems like a pretty big deal. Would anyone in this group actually consider suing their employer? And if so, how would that feel and what would that look like? This seems like a pretty pretty difficult way of actually enforcing this law. So I kind of want to get a feel for how y'all would feel about that I can I can go first my I would be really hesitant to do so uh, as a general rule I'm grateful for employment and even if I perceive and actually have evidence that I'm making less money than a colleague um, what I might do is raise it up through the company but I'm not sure that I would actually sue for equal pay
2: what do y'all think so this is really interesting for me because one of my best friends actually did sue. Um, for gender discrimination, and she won. I mean, they settled, but she got a significant settlement. Um, and basically, she was told, even by her attorney, who was great, who was definitely on her side, was basically told, "You really need to think long and hard about this because you're really young in your career, um, you know, and you this it might lead to your name getting sullied throughout the legal uh, profession." And she ultimately chose to go forward because. Her and another man who worked at the firm—they had both been hired at a similar time. He was less qualified than her, but was making, um, I think it was about ten thousand dollars more. And then you could put their resumes side to side and just see that she was higher ranked in her law school. She had had more experience. Um, they've literally, but I think that's one of the cases. It was so glaring and so obvious that she was able to sue. But I think it's really, it's a hard thing to actually execute in most cases.
1: Yeah, I agree. I would be really hesitant because, especially as a young woman, I feel like it would be very difficult to make that decision because of how it would affect your trajectory within that company or finding employment afterwards. And even gaining reputation of being, you know, a complainer. I feel like we sometimes have that Uh, ingrained in us that we don't we kind of want to be people pleasers and not complain about uh, things that maybe we shouldn't be complaining about so it's kind of hard to look put all that aside and look past that and make that decision and uh, yeah I think that's a really yeah it takes a strong sense of self to do that so I commend her. I think it's important to note,
4: like even beginning that process like the resources the time the money that goes into it a lot of people who are fighting for equal pay they don't have those resources to begin with and so like getting a way for them to like obtain that to get a lawyer to go to court to be able to sue their boss that's a whole problem within itself before they can even make the decision of like if they're gonna do it like how they're gonna do it
0: as women we are trained to treat finances different um, I was, Re- A friend of mine told me about this article that she read, and it basically said that women are taught to budget and to save, whereas men are encouraged to invest. So even as women, we are taught to treat finances differently, and I think that part of what we see in the workforce is that women are considered to be maybe less good with money and less financially able, and also it's just become the cyclical thing that women earn less. And so our society and culture continues to reinforce this idea that women have jobs where they earn less. So what are some theories about why the pay gap continues to exist? And what are some ideas for closing the pay gap?
4: I think it continues to exist because like what was mentioned before, when a woman steps up and says something or wants to sue their boss, or seeks justice, it's seen as them being overly emotional, them complaining. And whereas if a man did it, they would see it in a totally different light. And so, like, just, like, expelling, like, that stereotype that if a woman speaks up for themselves and for other women, that it's seen as complaining. I feel like we need to rewrite that narrative. Um, And as women, like, stop viewing it as complaining and as being super emotional, um, because we have every right to stand up for ourselves just like a man does.
2: One thing that I think is really important, um, is pay transparency at an organization. And again, I kind of have personal experience with that because I worked at a nonprofit and basically we were told not to share our salaries with anyone, and then that kind of broke eventually. Like, everybody kind of broke down and started talking about it. And we realized the disparance, the discrepancies in what people were making. And then the nonprofit ended up unionizing and, like, creating actual, like, salary bands and creating, like, well, why is each person in each salary band? How do you move up? And I think that's important. I also think just on a personal level, talking to your friends about what you make and s- saying, like, your salary out loud, like, we're taught that that's rude to do. But I actually think it's very important, especially as women, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable, because me and my friends started doing that a couple years ago, and lo and behold, a lot of us have gotten raises. Because when you're actually discussing, it's like, well, I make that. Well, my husband did a similar job, and he was making more. Well, why is he making more? I think, like, just the idea of being upfront about what your worth is with other women is really empowering.
1: A lot of times when I've discussed this topic with people, they go to this idea that women go for lower-paying jobs almost, which I feel like is wrong in a lot of senses. But I read an interesting article recently that was talking about how in Scandinavian countries where they've been um, doing more affirmative action for women in STEM and really encouraging women to enter the STEM field for a while now, that gap has really closed. Like, and women are almost overshooting their male counterparts in STEM fields. And in that same article, there was... A whole graph that was comparing women in STEM fields in like their, the proportion of women in STEM fields on one axis and then the gender equality on the other axis. And it was a direct correlation. So I think that again, it's like a really social thing and that once it becomes more normalized for women to see these um, or go for positions in STEM fields or in management and things like that in higher paying positions, that argument wouldn't be as valid. And uh, yeah, I think that that's just a really a, a socially constructed idea.
2: I, I guess then I just want to mention there are some potential uh, congressional remedies in the work uh, in the works right now. Um, this is from the American Association of the University of Women. There is the Pay Equity for All Act, which prohibits employers from using salary history to set pay. And there's a Fair Pay Act, which would require employers to provide equal pay for jobs of equivalent value to help reduce the impact of um, occupational segregation. Uh, That should be common sense, I feel like, but apparently um, it's not. So let's hope and like support um, these acts, hope that they pass in the near future. Absolutely.
0: We can definitely hope for that. Next up, we have, we're have we going to discuss Title IX, which became effective in 1972. Title IX has an education focus and was passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972. Olivia, you selected this legislation since it's important to you. Can you give us an, overni- uh, an overview of Title IX, please?
1: Yeah, so this one's definitely close to my heart. Uh, encouraging all kids to play sports and be active is so important for their Health, their physical, social, and mental well being, but gender roles push boys towards sports more than girls. So, Title IX has just exponentially filled this gender gap and also improved other gender inequality issues in education, such as rights of pregnant and parenting students, the way sexual harassment and assault claims are handled in schools, and the underrepresentation of women in STEM fields. And so, for me, sports all throughout high school, middle school, it gave me my life stability because of that training schedule. And it also just helped me develop confidence and sense of self, like I think all extracurriculars do. But I think that participating in sports for girls is even more important because we're taught to value our appearance of our body so much rather than our physical ability and achievements we're capable of. But I, the reason that this uh, law came into effect wasn't actually because of sports inequality. It was definitely an issue. But feminists were lobbying for Title IX in the late 1960s and early 1970s because many leading institutions didn't even accept women. Many law schools and medical schools just were men only. And there was also often quotas that limited female enrollment in higher education. And so they were sort of trying to fill this gap on the tales of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which didn't actually explicitly prohibit sex discrimination in educational institutions, And there was actually a an additional Title VI, which banned discrimination in federally funded private and public entities on the basis of race, ethnicity, and national origin, but it had excluded sex. So that's why Title IX was passed to fill this gap. And that's when President Nixon signed it into 1972. And at the time there was debate over whether athletics should be exempted from the law as a whole. There was actually an amendment called the Tower Amendment, which proposed the exemption, but it was rejected. And the publicity of this rejection led to the immediate association of Title IX with athletics, but it's understandable that this association occurred now given the exponential effect that it's had on female athletics. In 1972, only 15% of college athletes and 7% of high school athletes were female, which is just such a tiny number compared to now, where it's almost half and half, 43% of high school athletes and 46% of Division I athletes are female. uh, But Title IX is also credited with decreased dropout rates and increased college graduation rates for women, and it's led to more stringent and regulated handling of sexual assault cases. And uh, even recently under the Obama administration, uh, Obama clarified through his uh, Dear Colleague letter that under Title IX, addressing sexual assault is a civil rights issue, and it also issued protections for LGBT students. And so he changed the burden of proof for sexual assault to a preponderance of evidence. But since then, Trump has altered the standard to requiring clear and convincing evidence as the burden. But uh, there are still issues to be tackled within the Title IX's goals. Like pregnant and parenting students still struggle to have full and equal access to education. And women are still underrepresented in STEM fields in this country. And despite its good intentions and the progress it's been contributing to, there's faults in Title IX, such as many people that argue that Title IX discriminates against men because of their decreased athletic opportunities, specifically because of the proportionality clause. Um, They argue that males seek to participate in athletics more than females, and this clause states that if the number of female athletes participating in athletics is not proportional to the number of females in the institution, then that institution is in fact discriminating. But um, schools are, uh, the important thing to me is that schools need to have an established procedure for sexual assault claims and harassment claims. And it has outlawed um, discouraging or retaliating against people who bring up these claims and making sure they're taken seriously. So I think that it's overall obviously is a net positive, but I worry about the future of it because of these claims of discrimination in the opposite way and the possibility that it's a quota system for women in sports.
0: As women who have gone through higher education or as women who are currently in higher education, Title IX could potentially mean a great deal for those who are actually recording this podcast right now. So I want to kind of bring this home and dial it in. What does Title IX mean for students today? And, you know, maybe more specifically, what could Title IX mean or have meant for the women on this podcast?
3: So as a young female, I think that going into school and going into college, the main thing about Title IX that concerns a lot of people um, that is covered is the sexual assault and sexual harassment in schools. Um, I've done a little bit of research on this topic, um, and I've watched a couple of documentaries, and so, um, and I think Title IX is a great thing, and it has a lot of pros to it, but I think where the cons fall is that it doesn't always protect sexual assault survivors, um, that might be a controversial thing, I don't know, but I know that, like, There's a bunch of statistics going around um, on this old documentary, not old, I mean, like 2015. It's called The Hunting Ground. It's on Netflix. Um, But basically just highlighted kind of how Title IX needs to improve and how they're protecting sexual assault survivors. Um, And so I pulled up some of the statistics, actually, in Stanford University from 1996 to 2013. Uh, there was 259 reported sexual assaults, and there was only one expulsion out of all of those. Um, and the same was very similar with the University of Virginia in 2005. 205 reported sexual assaults with zero expulsions. So there's a bunch of statistics like that that show that there's been a ton of reported sexual assault claims, and there's also a ton of sexual assault claims that haven't been reported because maybe because things don't really happen to the people who do these things or other reasons. But I think that's a failure of Title IX. But I think it could definitely improve. It just needs to be pushed for a little bit more within legislation and also within like the university system as well to make sure that these claims don't go unresolved.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that the claims definitely need to be taken more seriously and this new standard that Trump has said just makes that more difficult because as the as it's been interpreted in the past, sexual assault and harassment, it it hinders your ability to receive an education and it contributes to dropout rates and it, it has negative impacts on education. And so it's a clear violation of this law.
0: So we know one of the issues or one of the goals of Title IX is to make sure that this is enforceable. And we also know that schools can risk losing their federal funding if they don't handle Title IX correctly. Ultimately, though, is Title IX a quota? And how could it be altered to fulfill its original egalitarian goal?
1: So, yeah, I think that the best solution would be to eliminate this quota clause because it's sort of become associated with Title IX now in a lot of circles because it's contributed to a a large decrease in men's athletics. And while women's athletics has increased substantially, a lot of um, people say that it's unfair to give women all these advantages in sports and women who are less interested in sports um, more opportunities than, than there are more men who are interested in it. I think that this is the result of just uh, people, gender roles and the way people were raised. And I don't think that women are actually that much less competitive, but I do see that it's unfair to have a certain number of women that you need to have playing sports in order for it to be considered not discrimination. I think that that is considered a quota system. Gotcha. So I'm going to counter you a little bit.
0: One of the things that we have going on in tech is a a similar idea, right, that women are less interested in tech. And it may also be, like you outlined, it may just be kind of a societal norms or like a cultural thing that, yeah, by numbers women might actually be quote unquote, less interested because there are fewer women in it. But what we have found is that by requiring at least a certain number of interviewees to be women, it's kind of hard to require a certain number of hires to be women, um, is that we have found more women who are interested and who may not have had the opportunity. And so while I understand that the like having a hard and fast quota may be problematic, I do think that having it in place or having something similar to it in place to really enforce this idea of like universities need to be actively recruiting women, I think that's a good thing. Because I think that the more you give women the opportunity and the more you open the door and say, this is okay, this doesn't have to be your societal norm, this you don't have to pretend like you don't like sports because you've been taught you know even subconsciously that your job is to be have this major academic focus I think that by having this in place it puts the onus on the university to really go out and look for these women who might be interested I do agree that like maybe having a hard and
2: fast thing might be an issue but the general like spirit of it I think is a good thing and just to add to what Megan's saying I just worry because that's uses that has been used as a cop-out in so many ways for so long. of saying like, well, you know, just not enough people applied for this job or not enough people were interested or it's not like a field women want to be in. And then when you actually like put those procedures in place, then I think it's what Megan was saying, in a lot of different fields and a lot of different facets of society, when the door is open, then people do come in.
4: So I would like to add to that. I think that... Um, As Olivia said, like, there's a lack of interest in sports. So there's more men who want to play sports and then women who don't. Like, so if that is true, I think that making a quota would be beneficial because it allows women to open that door to see that there's other strong women that are interested in sports and then they too could do that as well. So I think it is important to have the quota Um, like Megan Rapinoe. And U.S. women's soccer. Like, she's a role model for women who want to be in sports. So I think that, like, if we have more women like that in sports, we'll see, like, more women being interested in sports as time goes on.
1: I agree with that. And I think that we've seen that since Title IX was enacted because it's just had so much success in female athletics and the amount of um, equality in sports today and the amount of female participants compared to what it was before it's definitely in part due to the quota system or the proportionality clause that was uh, enshrined in it, and so I think the question is: should it be maintained? And I'm I actually am not sure because I can definitely see both sides of it. So Title IX has um, exponentially increased gender equality in education, and it's made it so that women have more opportunities in sports, but also in STEM fields and in pursuing their education um, despite sexual harassment or despite their parental or uh, status. And so I just think that it should continue to be protected, and maybe it should be modified, but it's definitely improved the education for women in this country.
0: Absolutely. That's 100% true.
1: Megan, before
2: before you move on, I have one thing to say, and I hope you don't cut this out. So I think that this peach pod episode, if I understand that, like, we've gone a little bit over time on some of the subjects. But if women are making 20% less than men, I think this peach pod episode should be 20% longer than the normal. <laughs> my own personal opinion. That's, I. that's
0: fantastic. I will just say that, uh, well, I don't know what to say to that. We have not shown that listeners will listen to podcasts that is quite that long, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's a, an experiment we should have. Give it, we're, we're giving the women space. That's absolutely true. We are absolutely giving the women, giving the women space. And this is, this is, I mean, we have an all-female cast for perhaps the first time in Peach Pot history. So the final item we will cover in this episode is the Violence Against Women Act of 1994. Peyton, you selected this act. Why don't you tell us what this act covers and also how did it change life for women in the U.S.?
4: This act was designed to help combat violence against women, more specifically, domestic violence, dating violence, stalking, and sexual assault. So the effort began in 1990, and then it was finally passed four years later, and it was signed into law under the presidency of Bill Clinton. This act was also a part of um, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, So this act has provisions on rape and battering prevention measures, and then it provides funding to support victims and services they would need access to, and also ensures federal prosecution of interstate domestic violence and sexual assault crimes. So how this changed life for women in the U.S., first and foremost, it brought together a community-coordinated response. The criminal justice system, nonprofit organizations, and social services all came together to work on this issue, Um, and then this protected not only women who are U.S. citizens, but also immigrants who had faced violence as well. There was a much-needed focus on populations of women who had been neglected and underrepresented throughout history, such as Native Americans, and we'll get into that a bit later. From this act, women were able to be supported in their communities with more rape crisis centers, domestic violence shelters, and organizations such as The Cottage in Athens, Georgia, which is an amazing resource if you live in Athens, if you go to school at UGA, and you ever need any help with anything um, relating to like domestic violence, abuse, sexual assault, please go to The Cottage. They're amazing. And then since this act was passed, there have been a higher number of reports of violence and abuse, which means more people are being held responsible for their actions and more people are getting justice for what happened to them. The number of victims who have received medical help has also increased as well. So Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape says that in 2010, 80% of rape victims received medical treatment compared to 65% in 1994 when this was passed. So it is increasing, and that was 10 years ago. So it's probably going up so much more now that it's 2020. This act has changed over the past 16 years, and it's important to note that, according to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, in 2000 was the first really big set of changes um, to this act. And so during 2000... Congress improved and built upon the foundation of the act. They created a legal assistance program for victims. And most importantly, they further protected immigrants by establishing U and T visas. And so these visas allow for victims to remain in the U.S. and seek justice for the crime committed against them. This also helped people who were involved in human trafficking as well. And then in 2005, Congress made advances on the parts that address criminal and civil justice and community-based efforts to counteract these violences and raise support and awareness. Um, there was also another focus on immigrant women, provisions that solely served them and put protections in place to reduce the amount of abuse towards immigrant women. And then there was many prevention strategies that were put in place to help stop violence before it even started. Um, These resources and protections include funding for more rape crisis centers, making these resources more accessible to victims who have language barriers. So going back from the National Domestic Violence Hotline, they said since 1996, the National Domestic Violence Hotline has answered over 3 million calls. The hotline receives over 22,000 calls a month and provides access to translators in 170 languages. Further breaking down the barriers between people who don't speak English, but do live in the US or are in the US so that they can receive access to these resources as well. It also made it illegal for a victim to be evicted from their home or their apartment due to their status as a victim of violence, abuse, or stalking. And then this also gave children and teenagers access to these resources and protections as well. And then finally in 2013, Obama extended this resource to further help Native Americans, as well as members of the LGBTQ community, better resources to investigate rape crimes, and colleges received more tools to educate students and faculty on sexual assault and dating violence. And then for Native Americans, Native American courts were able to now prosecute offenders on tribal lands, whether or not they were a part of the tribe. The final point I have to make is how this ties into Georgia. Under Georgia law, rape is defined as a man um, using his penis and raping a woman in her vagina. Sorry to be explicit, but so that's how it's defined. Um, And then if a man were to, they don't consider like a man raping a man. That's not rape. That's aggravated sodomy. And a woman raping a woman is sexual battery. And I think it's just important to note that for the LGBTQ community and just for, like, anyone, that, like, it needs to be redefined as, like, if you force yourself sexually on anyone, that is rape. It does not matter your gender, your sex, what you identify as, that is rape. Like, it shouldn't just be a man raping a woman.
0: I absolutely agree with that. As, you know, a member of the LGBTQ community, we occasionally see acts you know, against people within the community, sexual acts against people within the community, and there's not a great legal definition for it in the state of Georgia or in many other places as well. So one of the things that I want to do to open this up to questions within the group is, you know, we've got a group full of women, and let's work in purely hypotheticals here. As a woman, hearing what what this Violence Act Against Women of 1994 does and knowing what the you know what the culture is around women these days. How do the women on this podcast on this episode feel about the act,
2: and do you think it does enough? I actually want to weigh in. Like I have like my immigration attorney hat on for a moment, because this act, like I really cannot stress how amazing it's been for immigrants. I've done about ten of these cases. Um, they take a long time, and they're really hard to put together. But the fact that women were able to leave abusive relationships instead of having to stay for the pressure of getting that green card is just astronomical, is amazing. One thing I will say is that their definitions of what abuse is, I still don't think that they take emotional abuse as seriously as they should. It's much harder to prove if it's strictly emotional abuse. I mean, for a lot of reasons, but they also, they just don't take it as seriously And I think um, that's one thing that the act is lacking.
4: I think that it's lacking. Um, As a college student, um, we went through, like, at orientation, a talk on sexual assault and how to prevent it and things like that. But I think there needs to be also a bigger conversation on, like, how to receive these resources, how to have access to it, how to gain access to, like, the hotline and a rape crisis center and how to actually like yes like this act like does provide those services but like how does like one get to that um and just like starting conversation of that I think is really important absolutely so for the women on this
0: podcast if there was one thing that you feel like would make women more likely to report sexual assault cases or violence against them in against women in any way from your perspective what would that be what could a follow-up act do that would make
2: handling these cases easier i think the criminal justice system needs to move faster i think that um these cases should take priority because i'm not saying that they're more serious than other cases but i think with the stigma around sexual assault and like the idea that it's for women to function in day-to-day then I think they should be adjudicated quickly, and I think that if you file a claim like this, then it shouldn't take more than a couple months to at least get movement on it.
4: Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree with Tori. I personally know people who don't want to report because they know it's going to take up years of their life to go through this process and to seek justice. It's going to take so much time that they'd rather just not say anything because they don't want to like spend so much time on something that was so hurtful to them just to, like, maybe get um, reparations and get justice. I agree with all this, and this isn't necessarily
3: a legislative change because it's kind of hard to tackle that in a way um, with this topic, but I would say a societal change should be people should just believe women more and the dialogue should shift and just should believe women instead of thinking that they're just lying right off the bat. And I think that would also help survivors as well come forward and not be scared of being harassed or not taking seriously about their claims as well.
1: Yeah, I agree with all of y'all as well. And I I really appreciate the point about how rape is defined legally. And I think just to add on to the last thing that was said, um, part of the discussion should be more just widening What it looks like, because I feel like there's a spectrum of behavior. It's not just one specific act. And I feel like including that in the discussion, specifically at, you know, orientation at school or at workplaces, I think that that's important to know that it's not just one thing, that there is a range of behaviors and the legal system should reflect that as well. I think it's important just to note
4: with this act that it was um, created in 1994 and it is ever changing. Um, And so it hasn't been changed since 2013. So I think they're definitely, in the coming years, it is 2020. It does need to be amended and updated as well. Um, And it's also, like, just good to, like, look at your resources, look at what this act can provide for you, for your friends, for your mom, for anyone, any women, and just, like, starting conversation and talking about it.
0: Absolutely. I just want to thank everyone for joining the podcast and celebrating uh women's history month with us at peach pod we're hoping to bring you some more special episodes with similar themes maybe not women's history but you know other thematic celebratory or recap type podcasts to everyone who participated in this show kelly olivia Peyton, and tori thank you so much for coming on
4: it's so nice talking to all of y'all y'all are amazing Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And with that, we will see you next time.
4: That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dopso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.